Well, as many of you know, Mary and I went to Thailand. We were gone for about four weeks. We missed three Sundays here. And when we got back, or I should say while we were there, you had some very good speakers here uh, that were sharing God's word with you. And one of those speakers was Sean Rollins. And he spoke on the subject, Why Give? Interesting subject. By the way, I listened to that message. It was a very, very good message. If you've not listened to it, I'd encourage you to go online to fbcarlington.com and uh, listen to that message on Why Give. It was very good. Well, then last Sunday, I was sitting down here, and we were introducing the missions conference, which starts this Thursday night. I know that during that time we have what we call the fellow helper card. We call it, I ask it to be called the faith promise card. Uh, and you'll understand as we move through this service. And you know, I sense the Lord saying, Bill, I want you to speak on giving. Now, some of you say, wait a minute, first time I've been in church and you're going to try to get my money. Wrong. Wrong. That is not the case at all. In fact, I believe that everybody here will be blessed by what I have to share. But some of you are going to be unusually surprised. Some of you are going to take me out after church and want to beat me up. Okay, so that'll get your interest that you'll keep on listening to what I have to say. Because we're going to talk about, by the way, that, that, that giving is a vital part of our message here when it comes to worldwide missions, for getting the gospel out. And I rejoice that this church has been very, very involved in sending missionaries out. And many of you, by the way, have gone out to the field in different types of opportunities to uh, be missionaries, to that is, on a short-term mission, and God has blessed you. And we keep sending people out. I know Kendra plans to go on out, and uh, Kyle and Kinsey Rabel tend to go out. And if you read the insert about Mark and Kathy who have been working with our youth, they also are planning to go out. By the way, we're all supposed to go out, but they're, they're planning on leaving the church and going out as God should so direct. So uh, this will be, I think, a very interesting message too. And we're going to be talking about this subject, giving. Now follow me, under law and under grace. And uh, you're going to find out that, uh, that uh, uh, this is... Uh, uh, a huge subject. I have to laugh because two Sundays ago when we came back, or three, I met one of the ushers, uh, Eddie Hyatt, back there, and he said so he shook my hand and said, Bill, good to have you back. Now, I want you to notice what happens when you're gone. And he opens up the bulletin and says, you see, we've gone down. We're no longer 100% giving to the church, general fund, or mission. By the way, that's usually true in January anyway. But I had to laugh. We had a joke, and then we said, you know, it's kind of like that old adage, when the uh, cat's away, the mice will play. Now, I don't know whether that's the case or not, but I laughed about the fact that uh, uh, together that uh, uh, Eddie should uh, point my attention to that. So um, we're going to deal, though, with this subject of, and it's going to be very helpful, I believe, and that is giving under law and under grace. And so let's begin with your outline. Take your outline. You're going to need that. And we're going to go through a lot of scripture. Some of it I'm going to just read to you. Others I'm going to have you turn the Bible or it will be back here uh, or up here behind me on the wall. And so we're going to start out, the very first major point, giving under law, the three required tithes. Giving under law, that means you're under the Mosaic law now, chosen by God, the required, the three required tithes. Again, let me say it's a very, it's a huge subject matter. I can only touch on the highlights, and there's so much about giving in both the Old and New Testament that we could spend weeks Weeks mining out God's truth about giving. But this message is more of a survey on that subject. Number one, the Levitical tithe or 10%. 
the Levitical tithe, or 10%. Leviticus 27, I'm not having you turn there, verses 30 and 32 say this, Thus, all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. For every tenth part of herd or flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. Now we drop down to Numbers 18.21. I don't expect you to look there, but you might want to write it down. Numbers 18.21, God said to the sons of Levi, that was a priestly tribe, to the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance. In return for their service for which they perform the service of the tent of meeting. That's called the Levitical tithe or 10%. We move to the second, the, what I call the celebratory worship tithe. The celebratory worship tithe or 10%. I'm going to be reading Deuteronomy 14, 22 through 26. Deuteronomy 14, 22 through 26. You'll find this one very, very interesting, I think. He says, you shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to establish its name, the tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. If the distance is so far that you... Uh, that, that, that you are not able to bring the tithe, since a place where the Lord your God chooses to set his name is too far away from you when the Lord your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money. So now you're going to take your produce, your animals, and so forth, your oil, and you're going to exchange it for money and bind the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses you. Here's the part you're going to like. You're going to like this. You may spend the money for whatever your heart desires. I don't think he meant ladies go out and buy a new dress or wardrobe. Okay. But he says, you may spit over whatever your heart desires for oxen or sheep or wine or even strong drink or whatever your heart desires. And there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice you in your household. So there's what we call, I call the celebratory worship tithe or 10%. We come then to the third aspect, number three, the welfare tithe. You thought Obama came up with that? No, the welfare tithe is in the Bible under the law, or 10%. We continue with Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 28 and 29. And that says, at the end of every third year, at the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit in your town. The Levite because he has no portion or inheritance among you, and the alien, the orphan, and the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. All told, you can figure that out if you're a mathematician. That's about 23% of what they brought in that God said they were to tithe. And you saw what it is under the Levitical tithe, the celebratory worship tithe, and the welfare tithe. Now we move into another area, though. Though it includes that, it is a dimension you need to see, and I think this is an outstanding and abiding principle that also applies today as back then. And that's the next major movement in your outline there, the requirement to honor God with one's first fruits. 
The requirement to honor God with one's first fruits. We begin with Nehemiah's exhortation. That's N-E-H-E-M-I-A-H apostrophe S. Nehemiah's exhortation. Nehemiah 10, 35-37, he says, Bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually and bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and our cattle and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks as is written in the law for the priests who are ministering in the house of our God. We will also bring the first fruit of our dough. Now you think that's money, don't you? No, that's dough. You know, making bread and so forth. Here's the money of our contributions, the first fruit of every tree, the new wine and the oil to the priests at the chambers of the house, our God, and the tithe of our ground to the Levites. For the Levites are they who receive the tithes in all the rural towns. Now he's still talking about that 10%, that tithe, but this time he's focusing on the first fruits. Whatever's first. Why? Because God owns it all, and God's the one who blesses them, and that's why they're supposed to bring the first fruits. Now, follow the next one, and this one you get to turn to, unless you want to see it behind me. Haggai. Haggai's exhortation. Haggai, H-A-G-G-A-I, apostrophe S. Haggai's exhortation. Haggai, chapter 1, it's only a two-chapter book, verses 3 through 11. Now, you're going to find this one interesting. You find some applications here. Haggai 1, 3 through 11. Then the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house lies desolate? Means the temple. They'd come back from their uh, 70 years of captivity and they were supposed to rebuild the temple. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, I like this, consider your ways. He's saying, look, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. People say, I can identify to that one. Let's keep going. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, listen to this, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Have you talked to your wife about that one, men? (laughs) Or heard that maybe it's billful with holes here. Thus says the Lord of hosts, look at the second time, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. So God, God, God is not letting them prosper. I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, he says, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and all the labor of your hands. You see, they had not put God first. They did not build his house. And God says, therefore, I cursed you. I kept you from being blessed and so forth. But now turn to Haggai 2, verses 18 and 19. Haggai, by the way, stick with me now. Don't get lost in this. Haggai 2, verses 18 and 19. Here Haggai the prophet was to say, Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was funded, 
consider. Okay, now they have acted like God wanted them to do. They're doing what he wants, and they're finishing building the house in that sense, the first roots. Is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree, as it has not borne fruit? In other words, nothing's happening yet. Now the last part. He, God making a promise. Yet, from this day on, I will bless you. Isn't that good? That's under law. That's under the Mosaic law. Let's go down to number three. Malachi. He's the Italian prophet Malachi. No, Malachi. M-A-L-A-C-H-I apostrophe S. Malachi's exhortation. Malachi 3, 8 through 10. And most of you are very familiar with this one. You've probably heard sermons on it before. God says through the prophet, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. By the way, they're being given their, they're blind and they're lame to God even, he says in chapter one. The whole nation of you. And then he sets before them this challenge. Bring the whole offering, or I'm sorry, the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. You see, God puts forth that challenge to them. He says, put me to the test. Now what? They're under law. Remember, they're under the law of Moses. They were commanded to bring that 23%, and they weren't doing it. He said, put me to the test and see if I will not rebuke the devourer and just give you a flood, a portion that I provide for you. We come to number four. Number four. Jericho, the classic Old Testament example of giving God the first fruits. Now, you remember God's promise. He had redeemed them, so they were his people. He had taken them for 40 years through the wilderness, preparing them for when they're going to go into the land. And he's going to give them the whole land of Canaan as he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob he was going to do. And so they're ready to go in. He says, listen, I'm going to go in with you. You've got giants in there. They're far more, these, these countries, I mean, yeah, these people, they are far more people than you. They, their military might is far greater than you, yours, but I'm going to deliver them into your hands. I'm going to give you their cities. I'm going to give you their wealth. I'm going to bless your land. I'm going to bless your crops. I'm going to bless your families. Material blessings. That's what he promised them. But, listen to me, he said, the first fruit belongs to me. The first city I'm going to deliver into your hands. He even describes, you know, Jericho, how it's large, huge walls and well fortified. The first city belongs to me. And here's what he says in Joshua 6, 70, 19. The city shall be under the ban. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, Only keep yourself from the things under the ban. This city and everything in it belongs to me, the first fruit, so that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban and make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. 
But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. That's a beautiful example. They're now crossing the Jordan River. The very first city they're going to take is an impregnable city. And he says, listen, I'm giving you not only that, the, the cities, all the cities, and all the people in those cities, but that first city is sacred. It belongs to me. The first fruit belongs to me. And you know what happened. Out of I don't know how many soldiers went in there to conquer uh, Jericho, one man Decided, he looked around, nobody's going to see this. You know, he coveted. He took that which God said belonged to him. He took a garment, he took some gold, I think it was, and he went and hid them in his tent. Evidently his wife and his children knew it as well. No problem, nobody saw it. Nobody saw it. And so they go out for the little tiny village of Ai. And you remember the story? 36 Israelite men lost their lives. I don't know how many widows that left and how many children were without their father but there obviously was a number of them and they fell before their enemies because of what that first fruit was taken by uh, by Achan and God had uh, them examine the whole people and the lot came and fell upon Achan and he uh, Joshua give God the glory and tell what you've done because he wouldn't do it until he got caught and then he said God will trouble you because of you troubling Israel. So that's quite a principle to me, and I think there's an application. I only say application even today with regard to the principle of honoring God with the first fruits. Now we come to a next major section. Listen, this is so big, and Sean did talk on this some. And this is Jesus teaching on giving. And all I have is three parts that I want to share. And you can go back and listen to Sean's message to get what he had to say about this. Jesus teaching on giving. Number one, store up treasure for yourself in heaven. That was primary, wasn't it? Store up for yourself treasure in heaven. Matthew 6, do not store up for yourself treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. By the way, giving is always a matter of the heart. Not a matter of compulsion or wringing it out of you. It's got to be a matter of the heart. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Number two. As I said, this is pretty fast. Number two, use your money to reach the lost. Now this is a most insightful scripture I want you to turn to. Luke 16. So turn to Luke 16 or read it behind me if you will. Verses 9 through 12. Use your money, Jesus taught, to reach the lost. Luke 16, verse 9, he said, and I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. That's interesting. What's he saying? I allow you to have money. Use it to make friends of those who are not saved. So when it fails, what's he mean there? It means you die. That's what it really means. You die. They will receive you into the eternal dwelling. Isn't that great? 
You've used your money by giving to the church, by giving to missions, supporting individuals and so forth. They're going out on the field. And maybe you've used it to reach out to people that are, they're not religious or not in the church. And you've reached out to speak to them. And they put their faith in Jesus Christ. He says, when you die, they will be there to say thank you for what you did. That's what he's talking about. And then he goes on in this text. He who is faithful in a very little thing, is faithful also in much. What's he talking about? He's talking about the use of money that he puts in your hands. And he who is in, unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. So he's talking about what you do with your money. That's what he's talking about in the text. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, that's money. If you've not been faithful, who will entrust the true riches to you? Wow! You see what he's saying? You want the true riches. He said, well, if you're not faithful with the use of unrighteous mammon, money, who's going to entrust you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, because why? It belongs to him, doesn't it? Who will give you that which is your own? That's a profound text. And so he emphasized, use your money to reach the lost. And, of course, there's even more to that because God says, I want to give you that which will be yours to keep for eternity. Thirdly, he said, you cannot outgive God. And he said that different ways, but you cannot outgive God. He taught that. And turn, if you would, to Luke 6.38 or read it up behind me on the wall here. Luke 6.38, Jesus said, give, and it will be given to you. So he said, you know, you give with the right heart, it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, <laughs> pressed down, I like it, shaken together. I mean, really, it's not, 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 and nowhere in that. He says, I, they're going to press it down and shake it together. And he says, even running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Well, that's quite a principle there. We could talk a lot about that text, that verse. I know also he mentioned when uh, Peter said, well, hey, we've, we've left all. We followed you. We've given you what's in it for yes. And he said, what? You'll get a hundredfold. Matthew chapter 19. You'll get a hundredfold. So the whole point, and if you've not learned that, you cannot outgive God. Now we come to a most, so that's giving under law. Giving under God, law and what Jesus had to teach. Now you're going to find this next section very, very interesting. And that is false teaching about giving embraced by multitudes of churches. False teaching about giving embraced by multitudes of churches. I'm talking about even very, very good, Bible-centered, evangelistic, mission-oriented churches. False teaching. Because all I can go is the Scriptures, right? All I can do is go with what does the Scripture say, not what does a church or denomination say. Number one, false teaching. you find this interesting, as said. Number one, Christians are to tithe 10% of their income to God. Ever hear that? Sure. That's a false teaching. That's not biblical. This is taught in multitudes of churches that God requires or at least expects 10% of Christians that they give back to him, 10% of their income. And I don't know, sometimes they argue, is that supposed to be the gross or the net? Believe me, pastors love this one. And church leaders, they love that. Because let's at least put a little leverage on you that you're expected to give 10% of your monies that you earn. 
That way, unless we know that if you're a faithful Christian and you're coming to church and you're involved with ministry, that you're going to give at least 10%. Pastors, as I said, they love that. They figure that if you believe that God demands that of you, that is the tithe, at least they can get 10% of the money out of you. Listen, perhaps 10% would be a good place to start, but God does not require it. You're not under law. Listen to me. This is new for a lot of it. You are not under law. You are under grace. Under grace. And being under grace, God does not, not, does not demand of you 10% of your income, either gross or net. You're saying, whew, glad for that. Well, wait a minute now. Let's move on with what else he has. Second false teaching. Number two, failure to tithe 10% will bring God's curse upon you. Ever hear that one? Well, we read it over there in Malachi. Yeah, but if you fail to give 10%, oh, God's going to get you. <laughs> wow. I, um, this, by the way, this was true under the Mosaic Law. You saw that. Under the Mosaic Law, that was true. That was part of their command from the Mosaic Law. They had to give 10% or 23%, literally, or God did bring a curse upon them. I remember my first church. It was in Ames, Iowa, and uh, there in Ames, we had this little tiny church, Mary and I did, and there was a lady, bless her heart, she had the right name. She really, her name was Grace Thrasher. Grace Thrasher. That's an interesting combination. And one day during Sunday school, I was walking by, by her class, and she had the little ones in there, and she was saying, okay, kids, here's one dollar. How much of this does God get? And they're all supposed to say what? Ten percent. And then she, and if he doesn't get, get it, what happens to you? Grace Thrasher. Yeah. That, that's a, that's a false teaching. The idea that if I don't give 10% of my money to God, he's going to curse me. Here's number three. Number three. If you don't give to God 10%, the devil will get you. That's almost the same, isn't it? But I remember that first church, the lady in there, she said, no, I'll tell you what, if you don't, if you don't tie the 10%, the devil will get you. God will allow him to come into your life and he'll cause all kinds of problems. I want, I got news for you. I, I give to the Lord. I've tried to be generous with my giving, and the devil still tries to get at me. Things break down in my life, I, my, my, my home. Uh, I get sick. My kids get sick. Daniel gets hurt. All that. I mean, look, that's just not biblical. <laughs> Some of you, you're, you're being very, <laughs> this is all new to you, I can tell. <laughs> Maybe we should stick with the 10% and just let it go. <laughs> Listen, the devil. God does not say, okay, devil, get at them. They didn't give me my 10%. You don't find that in the scripture. Now, it may be true under the law of Moses, but not under grace giving. Here's number four. The more you give to God, the more wealthy you will become. Don't you wish? And I mean, there are, throughout our, our country and around especially the poverty-stricken countries of the world, that the, these people go out, these false preachers, if you please, they got a mixture of the gospel, a mixture of this, called the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. You've heard of it? Yeah. They go out and say, look, God wants you to be wealthy. And you need to give to my ministry. And then as you do that, God will so bless you. And you'll see your coffers filled full. And I'll tell you, in those third world countries where they're already suffering so desperately anyway, they buy into that stuff. 
And that is a false teaching of the scriptures, and that has really just swept our nation as well as uh, other countries as well. He does not promise you more wealth just because you give your money to him. What the prosperity gospel does is expose the greed in people's hearts. Everybody wants more money. This is a classic example of somebody trying to get your money and of your desire to, get, your desire to gain uh, more money by giving to that person. That is a false teaching of Scripture, but boy, it's rampant throughout churches all over the place. Number five, you don't have in your outline, but it's true. It's another false teaching. Listen to this one. The teaching in churches about the tithe and offerings. You know what that one is? The tithe, the 10% of your giving belongs to the church. The offering is everything beyond that that you give. That is still under law. It is not under grace giving. And so now we come to giving under grace in your outline. Giving under grace. First thing we want to deal with, again, this is just broad. I have to be quick here. New Testament insights on the first century church and grace giving. After all, where else are you going to learn about grace giving? Well, it's the New Testament church and grace giving. One thing that never happened, the apostles and elders, though often they would get together, they never got together and and appointed a delegation to go to Rome to visit Emperor Nero and say, look, would you be willing to give us a tax-exempt status if we... Donate our money to the church and to cause a mission. That never happened. Now, that's allowed in the United States, but I think that uh, benefit is soon going to be gone, you know, that you can deduct your giving. And by the way, never give on the basis of that, okay? Never give on the basis, well, it's tax exempt. Give because you're under grace. Anyway, from the first, first Corinthians chapter 16, we know that the early church met together on the first day of the week, which is what? What day is that? Come on. Sunday. Sunday. We know that. Why? Well, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so they met on the first day on Sunday, and they did their giving, at least in part, on that day. Here's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of the week, what day is that? Come on, everybody. Sunday, okay. On the first day of the week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collection be made when I come. What did you learn about grace giving from that text? Those words, as he may prosper. As God has prospered you, he says, then give the first fruits. Not 10%, just give to the Lord as he prospers you. Grace giving is giving you give to the Lord in his work from your heart, not from hypocrisy. There's a big one. Not from hypocrisy. We had an aunt. She's passed on now. She's been here at this church. She actually borrowed a dollar from one of my sons to put in the offering plate because it was very important that people see her put something in that offering plate. (laughs) We don't do that around here. You know, we're not after your money. I really mean that. We're after the teaching of the Word of God and let the Holy Spirit do that work, you know. But, again, let me state here, grace giving is giving you give to the Lord for His work from your heart, not from hypocrisy. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5? 
evidently what happened was Barnabas, good old Barney, he sold this. They needed money desperately. They had millions of people that flooded into Jerusalem, uh, and Peter preached that sermon, and people got saved. And they said, "We can't go home. We got to understand more what this is about this salvation, about Jesus Christ." But they didn't have the the wherewithal to stay. No place to stay, no money, and so forth. And so they had some great needs. And Barney, he said, look, I've got this tract of land. He sold it. It wasn't that he wanted people to know, but they found out. He sold the tract of land, gave all the money to them so they could use it for that need. Well, I'm sure Ananias and Sapphira, the world, that Barney, he's really something else, isn't he? Listen to how people are talking about him. I imagine Barney saying, good grief. I would rather they knew nothing about that. But they didn't know it. And so they sold a tract of land. But the thing they did was this, let's let people think that we gave the whole sum to the work of the Lord. So we get people talking to us about that. And that's what they did, of course. And here's what happened with the result of that. Listen to what the Apostle Peter says. He says, why has Satan filled your heart? Now listen carefully. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Does that mean Peter wanted him to give everything? No. Let's read on. While it remained unsold, listen to this, did it not remain your own? God wasn't against you owning the land. And after it was sold, was it not under your control? You didn't have to give any of it to the Lord. But the hypocrisy, why is it that you've conceived this in your heart? You have lied to men, not, you've not lied to men, but to, but to God, he says. You see, we're to give from our heart and not hypocritical. And because they did it hypocritically and pretended to be something they were not, then, then both of them were struck down dead. And somebody said, boy, that must have been a good offering after that. Or else people didn't give anything after that. But I want you to see the point about grace giving. When they owned the land, God said, I I didn't try to get that from you. You didn't have to give that to me. And even after you sold it for whatever amount of money, you didn't have to give any of it to me. But you lied about it. That was the problem. You said you gave it all. And let people believe that when you knew that you did not give it all. Beautiful insight there on grace giving. Giving. Another one, what, what, is this in your outline? What did the early church do with the monies the believers gave? Let's talk about that for a minute. What did the early church do with the monies the believers gave? Well, from 1 Timothy chapter 5, we learn learned the church supported financially the elders that rule well and those elders who work hard at preaching and teaching. So obviously they paid those because they wanted them to spend the time in the Word and be able to share with them. So we learned that from that. In fact, 1 Corinthians 9, Paul writes about that, that yes, uh, there are those that do that and uh, they are they're given a, a stipend for that. Uh, so that was one thing they did. Secondly, in the early church, uh, those scattered throughout the then-known world, they had a number of traveling preachers and evangelists. And you find in Scripture, says, look, help them if you can. And, and listen, they weren't churches like today where everybody had a Bible. In fact, they were longing to hear what God had to say and what did the apostles write and so forth. And so when these people would come into their town, he said, well, take them in, put them up. Uh, give them the stipend they need for their needs and for the journey that they continue on being used by God uh, in those areas there. But he said, beware, because there are many false teachers going about. And some other time we'll talk about that. So he said, beware of that. But that was another thing they did with the money. From Acts 6, we learned... 
that the early church took up collections that were used to care for the widows and the needy among the body of Christ. Paul went to churches he had started and collected money, stayed the Jerusalem saints, when he heard that they were going to face a severe famine there in Jerusalem. Agabus the prophet had told him that, so he traveled back and he preached in all these churches he had founded and established, but then he also took up that offering because he knew there was a need there, and so they did that. That was what they did in the first century with uh, the money. And we know from the Philippian church that they supported missions. Remember, in fact, I'm going to have you turn to this text, uh, Philippians 4, verses 15 through 20, because it's beautiful on grace giving. Uh, Paul was even under house arrest there. And the Philippian church is very concerned about meeting his financial needs, and so they took up an offering and they helped out there. And he says here, you know, verses 15 through 20 of chapter 4, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my need. Now listen, listen, this is incredible. You wonder how many church leaders can honestly, honestly say this. Not that I seek the gift itself. That's said out of the pure heart of an apostle, isn't it? Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. What an amazing man. What a godly man. Not that I seek the gift of self, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. You know, that's what every pastor and elder needs to think about you when it comes to giving and supporting this church. Those words right there. Because it's God's work. But I have received everything and fully says, I have an abundance, I am amply supplied. Have we received from Epaphroditus what you have sent? Listen to this. A fragrant aroma acceptable to God. An acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Did you get that? Dear ones, that is grace-giving. A fragrant aroma. An acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And then he goes on, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's an amazing text on grace-giving. Number two in this outline, giving under grace The Central New Testament Scripture on Grace Giving. Some of you may not be aware of this, and you need to be aware of this is central. This is the central teaching in the Bible on grace giving. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Again, we could spend hours and many sermons on this, but I'm going to hit the highlights here. So turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, if you will. I'm sorry I couldn't include more in your outline. I really mean that. I wish I could have. Because this is really loaded and valuable. God desires that you abound in grace giving, which is an act of genuine love. Let me say it again, because it's not in your outline. God desires that you abound in grace giving, which is an act of genuine love. Verses 7 and 8 of chapter 8. Verse 7, chapter 8 of 1st 2 Corinthians. But just as you abound in everything, you abound in faith and utterance and knowledge, in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I am not speaking this as a command. That's law. 
Not speaking of this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. That's why you give under grace. An expression of your love. Secondly, God's example to you of grace giving. My, oh my. God's example to you. Verse 9. God's example to you and me of grace giving. For you know the grace, there it is, of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Why? So that you through his poverty might become rich. That's probably the cardinal verse on grace giving right there. Thirdly, verse 12, in grace giving God blesses your readiness even when you can't give. Wow! Wow, did you get that? God blesses your readiness even when you can't give. Look at verse 12. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. That's a beautiful, again, about grace giving. And then verses 13 13 through 15, when you practice grace giving, God supplies your abundance. When you practice grace giving, God supplies your abundance. Verses 13 through 15, for this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. There's more that could be said about that text. But again, I want you to see there, when you practice grace giving, God supplies your abundance. There's more on that. Possession is not ownership. God owns it all. What you have is just on loan from God to you, and you should make every effort to make sure everything you have is involved in ministry. We saw that in that Luke section where he talked about, if I have entrusted you the these riches of money, who will entrust the true riches to you if you're not faithful in that which is considered a very little thing? That takes us into chapter 9. Grace giving and God's law of the harvest. Grace giving. Now we're going to talk about the law of the harvest. Saw that a little bit in the Old Testament under the law. But verse 9 of chapter, or verse 6, I'm sorry, of chapter 9. Verse 6, chapter 9. Now this I say, here's the law of the harvest. He's your God. He's your provider. He's your Savior. He's your Lord. He who sows sparingly, will also reap sparingly. That sounds like that Luke uh, 6.38. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's a law of the harvest. That's something God makes a promise to those who will walk with him and trust him in their realm of finances and giving. And there's more than just finance, by there's other ways we give as well as you know. Okay, then we move on to Your grace giving is negated if you give grudgingly or under compulsion. And some say, that's why I like teaching the tithe. Make them be under that bondage to understand that they've got to give 10% to please God. No, that's law. No, but here's what he says there. Look again at verse 7. Each one must do just as he is purposed in his heart. 
That's a matter of walking with God, being in fellowship and growing, trusting Him, growing in His grace and knowledge and walking by faith, not grudgingly or under compulsion. How many of you have been to meetings where they tried to get your money? I'm talking about church meetings. I have. I remember sometimes they'd pass the offering twice. And I know churches have done it three times. And I've known people that have left church. I've not been a part of this, thank God, because somebody came knocking on their door saying, you need to give. Isn't that something? I know people literally, they're not in church because somebody came and knocked on their door and said, you know, you're a member of this church. You're supposed to be giving. We haven't received anything from you. I mean, we're in a building program or whatever. Wow. So what does he say in verse 7? Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. Not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Wow. Why do you practice grace giving, and what does God promise to do? Look at verses 8 through 11. Why do we practice grace giving from the Scriptures, and what does God promise to do? Verses 8 through 11. And God is able to make all grace. There's that word again. Make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. That's an amazing verse. It says God says, well, look, I move in your heart and you give it away. If the need comes up, I'm going to bring that more in so that you can give that away too. As it is written, he, he who scattered abroad, he gave to the poor. What happened? His righteousness endures forever. God says, I saw that. I blessed that. Now he who supplies, who is that? Come on, tell me, who is that? God. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. That's grace giving. Wow. So do you see the vast difference between giving under the law and giving under grace? This is Bible teaching here. Not my idea. But the Scriptures, your giving under grace is not motivated by legalism or a command that says, Thus saith the Lord. It is motivated by love. And we talked a lot about love this morning. We sung about love. And as 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, From a cheerful, or literally that verse says, A hilarious, that's a Greek, it's hilario. The hilarious heart, God says, I am pleased. My, do you give that way hilariously? That's good, isn't it? You laugh all the way to church say, I'm giving this to the Lord. <laughs> but a heart of joy. So grace giving is to be a part of every Christian's spiritual growth. Each one of us needs to practice 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know... The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. What a tremendous portion of scripture. We come now very quickly to something, though I want to close with. Biblical examples of sacrificial giving and God's response. Biblical examples of sacrificial giving... And God's response. I'm going to go back into the Old Testament for a couple of the Elijah and that widow. 
Remember, he went before King Ahab and said, uh, there's going to be a, a, a drought and there's not going to be any rain until my command. In three and a half years, it was a drought, terrible. All of Israel's affected by that because God was trying to get them to repent and turn back to him. And so it got so bad that Elijah had to leave the brook Cherith. And so he was told by God that he'd go up to a little village in Zarephath, and that was out of Israel. That was up in Sidon. By the way, Jesus used this same story as well when he's in his hometown of Nazareth. So he went up there to Zarephath to a certain widow, and he asked her to give him a little water and a little bread. Here's her response. This is sacrificial giving. But she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour, a bowl of flour, and a little oil in a jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. I think it's interesting about God's timing. That famine had hit all through there, all of Israel, up into Sidon. And she was literally going, waiting for this was going to be her last meal. She and her two sons were going to die, or someone was going to die. <laughs> Elijah. Prophet of God says, well, wait a minute, make a little cake for me first, and afterward, make one for yourself and your son. Guess what? She's going to have to practice some faith here. I mean, I'd like to have that last meal. He said, but you do that, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. That was a test. I don't know if she thought, well, I'm going to die anyway, so what? I'll give him the last meal I got. I don't think so. I think she believed the prophet. And even though that was her last meal, the last one, she went in there and she baked that cake with that last oil and that flour. And lo and behold, whoa, wait a minute here. Where did that oil come from? Where did that flour come from? And she did that for the whole time until rain came. That's your and my God. That is sacrificial giving. We have another example. It's a little bit different, but that's Elisha and the widow. Now, this is different because this is an example of great need and yet fully trusting God. This woman's husband was among the prophets, but he died leaving such a debt that the creditor was coming to take her two sons away from her, and she went to the prophet Elisha. And though this was only an example of not Though this was not only an example of sacrificial giving, it certainly was one of great faith that she put into action. She told Elisha all she had was nothing. He said, what do you have in the house? All I've got is a little bit of oil. He said, all right. Go out to your neighbors and borrow everything you can. And she did. And take that little bit of oil and you pour it into that bowl that they gave you, that cup, that pitcher. And she kept doing that and it just kept, <laughs> it, she struck it rich. It just kept coming out of that little, little container until she had filled up the very last container that her faith caused her to reach out and get. And then it stopped. And she sold that oil and of course she was able to save her two sons. Listen, that's what I call sacrificial giving. That's faith giving. There's a third one that you know very well. You know it very well. All four gospels record it. One little guy that's looking at this crowd of disciples or apostles and saying, I think they're after my lunch. I got two little wafers, little, little wafers of bread and five little tiny fish. And I think those guys, the way they look at me, they're going to get it, you know. And so they came over and they said, Jesus, that's all we know. There's a guy up here, a little kid, and he says, well, go get it. Bring him to me. And can you imagine this little guy handing that little lunch over to the Lord Jesus Christ? And what did he do? 
I mean, not just 5,000 people, men, but women and children. That's an example of sacrificial grace giving and seeing what God will do. My. Turn to 2 Corinthians 8 if you're not there. One more that we didn't use. I purposely left this for a little later here. The Macedonians in your outline, the Macedonians, the Macedonian believers, listen to this in grace giving. Follow along and listen to what he says. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you what? What's it say up there? Think it's up there? It's coming. <laughs> Christ in you over glory. What can I say? Second Corinthians chapter 8. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you, what is it? Come on. The grace of God. The grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, you say, can these people possibly give? They're suffering. Their abundance of joy and their deep poverty. Listen, whoa, wait a minute, what kind of word? Their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. What words of expression of grace-giving? For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Does that sound like Paul saying, man, we've got to get this out of you. you people, come on, Macedonia, you've got to get more money. No. No, that's grace working in their heart and life. And they said, man, we're in this. We belong to the Lord. He gave himself that we could belong to him. And therefore, be, listen, God is the one who's provided what we have. And even though it's out of our deep poverty and our great affliction, listen, take it, take it. We want you. And Paul probably said, look, you guys can't afford that. No, you take it. That's grace giving. That's sacrificial grace giving. One of the things I shared with uh, Brother Jim, and Jim's, uh, he's done a great job in our mission. So listen, I'm, Jim, I praise God for you. I really mean that in our missions conference. But we have what we call the fellow helper card, and we've not really asked you or anybody to testify about how God's ministered. But way back when I was going to Bible school and my mom as well, we called it the, uh, um, the um, <laughs> what, you got to find my card here. Okay, we call it faith promise, commitment. And I remember my mom, and she was uh, as a... Uh, 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 John R. Rice to say she was so poor that you had to lean up against the fence to gobble if you were uh, Job's turkey. And uh, she was, uh, we, we ate a lot of cornflakes. I remember that. In fact, my brother and I, we quickly found jobs working in restaurants so we'd have better meals. Because she was, uh, she was poor and she was going to Bible school in Omaha and they'd have the missions conference and they would encourage people. And I think they did a little bit more of the law type thing, you know, that you need to give and, and trust God. But they helped people to grow that way anyway. And she agreed that she'd give $50 and she didn't have the money. I mean, she just did not have the money. Paying her school bill every year was, every, every time it came due was a, a real problem. I know that Mark and Kathy can testify to that as well. And, uh, back in Sweet Home, Oregon, where we came from, there was this fellow that we'd known for years, and he sent her a letter. Remember, she said, I, I, I just feel God, God wants me to give $50 to this, this pro- program, this missions conference. But she did not know, literally did not know where it was going to come from. Seems funny now because fifty dollars not so much, but way back there fifty years ago it was a lot of money. Anyway, she got this letter from this fellow back in Sweet Home, Oregon, where we lived. He said, "You know, you have a cement mixer that's been sitting out the rain. Would you consider selling that to me for fifty dollars?" 
That's how God works. Don't bind his hands. I close with this illustration because, you know what, I, ask, I simply ask to be called faith's promise because I would like to encourage you. And again, it has to come from the Lord, not from me, and it has to be grace-giving. But I want to share this with you because this is just how God led. I was sitting down there, and I felt he wanted me to bring this message. The church, the service is over last week, and I'm walking out, and uh, Amy uh, Steen Holmes gets a hold of me. And she says, uh, Pastor, I need to talk to you for a minute. And she says... Uh, she, has a, uh, she had in her hands this. Change for Mission Bank. Okay? And uh, she said to me, she had a little note. She said, Rusty Holmes, he's going to be seven at the end of uh, this month. And uh, for six months or so, she said, he has been begging me to let him empty his coin jar into this missionary bank. His reason is he wanted to give this money to make sure people got to hear about Jesus. I call that faith giving from a little child that's not even seven yet. So again, my challenge to you is you're not under law when it comes to your giving. Not 10%, not a tithe and offering. You're under grace, and the more you learn and discover the glory of God's grace and the blessing of it, the more God will move on your heart to do great things for you, and you'll see He is your loving Heavenly Father who provides exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you or I could ever ask or think. I'm hoping this. I'm not concerned about what you do with this except this. I love to have people come back and say, you know, we prayed about that. We wanted to know, God, what do you want us to do? And then later on come back and say to us a testimony, I had no idea how he's going to do that. But boy, I cannot, I just got to share the story of how God provided so that we could be a part of reaching the world with the gospel. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the fact that we're not under law. We're not uh, commanded to give a tithe, an offering. There is an issue that you want to be honored with the first fruits. I do believe that. And there's an issue that, God, you do bless. How in the world would we grow by faith if it wasn't the case? That you want us to seek your face and be faithful to you with that which you give us. And then see how you are a loving Heavenly Father that blesses above and beyond anything that we could ever comprehend. And, Father, we long for this. I do. And many of the people here do. That when I finally am home, the people come up and say, you know, I'm here. I'm here because you gave. I'm here because you made it possible for missionaries to come to countries where you would never be able to go, but they went. I think a kindred going to Morocco and others going to New Guinea and so forth. They went, and you didn't know me. You didn't know my name. You didn't know my family. You didn't know anything about me. But I got the gospel. I got saved. And I'm here to say thank you that you prayed that you gave and that they went. And they would receive us when all this fails. But the glory of it all begins. So I pray, Father, that this message about grace giving will glorify you. I don't want a dime. I don't want to wrangle a dime out of anybody in this group that's heard me, especially those that have come for the first time. Lord, you're not interested in their money. You're interested in their heart. You want them to know the joy of salvation, that they're forgiven, that you're their heavenly Father, Lord, and that, Jesus, you're their Savior. That's what you want. You're not after their money. You own the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. But, Father, you want us to grow in this grace and knowledge, and I pray that we'll learn the joy and the bounty of grace giving, even sacrificial giving as a Macedonians and just little old seven-year, near-to-be seven-year rusty homes. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.